0: Okay. <clears throat> uh, it is a very rainy uh, afternoon, at least in Chicago. And uh, uh, this is the first Zoom interview uh, I'm doing. Zoom has its advantages sometimes, although we're kind of Zoomed out and we're kind of becoming zombies. Uh, and I'm s- sitting with, uh, re- virtual sitting with uh, Alexis Thompson, who's uh the gentleman I met many years ago, probably two thousand and two in our prospectives days for the master's studies at the University of Chicago Divinity School so I can say I've known alex uh and that's that's how you pronounce your first name alex yeah yeah and i I think i know i i I've known alex for for many years uh, but um, as you will see from his the interview, Alex has been in and out and uh, he has had uh, uh, an adventurous exciting life to say the least so he was not a library mouse like myself <laughs> <Congratulations>. <laughs> yeah but alex uh, so so we met long ago and and providence made it that we both graduated from the phd at the same time which was the summer august of 2014 yep. basically after 13 years you're right after we started the program it took us less time than the Jews in the desert but still <laughs> uh, and uh, and especially you Alex have gone in various circles and came back and in a, in the most admiring way finished the job um, but uh, uh, so I'm going to start by asking Alex to introduce himself briefly but then also to ask him to talk about his personal journey uh because he has an interesting life to say the least again actually one of the most fascinating stories for someone who is uh well i mean i think you might be older than me right you what what year are you born were you born there alex
1: i'm 45 how old are you
0: 45. yeah i uh, yeah so i was born 78 so i am okay. 42 Gotcha, but, gotcha. So we're we're probably the same generation, more sure, or Sure. Yeah. And so, uh, <clears throat> please, Alex.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I'm uh, really excited to do this. I know we've been talking about it for a couple of weeks now. I've listened to some of your other podcasts, and they've just been really impactful to me. You know, just hearing about other people's lives and um, their um, faith journeys. Um, So, yeah, I'm really excited to share.
0: Yeah. So, can you... uh, uh,
1: Yeah, so, um, like I said, I'm I'm just really happy to be able to share my story as well. Um, So, you know, for me, I grew up um, just outside of Philadelphia in a place called Norristown. I'm um, proud to be from there, grew up in a predominantly um, black neighborhood. Um, and I think, you know, one of the hardest things for me growing up was finding a way um, to stay connected um, with the world around me. <clears throat> you know, as a, a black kid growing up in a predominantly black neighborhood, I always felt like there was this pressure to define myself in a certain way. And I didn't ever feel like that way I was supposed to define myself was actually who I am. You know, I was the kid who, you know, really liked math, you know, and really wanted to excel in school. I didn't know what football was or basketball was or anything like that. I mean, I guess I I did know what it was, but it never really captured my imagination there was something about me that um, was really drawn to academics, I would say. And and that created tension in my household. You know, I I grew up in a really tough household, all sorts of physical um, and mental abuse um, related to all sorts of things. But that made it difficult for me to focus on the things that I cared about, and I spent um, you know a fair part of my life, especially as I was growing up, feeling um, feeling like there was nothing and no one for me, you know, and so I struggled with suicidal thoughts, um, I struggled with you know rebelling against everything that I thought was keeping me from being who I wanted to be. and It was probably, you know, really when I uh, I joined the Navy, I was in the Navy for four years and I scored really well on the, you know, the military entrance exam, it's called the ASVAB. And when I joined the Navy, I got into a really good job field. And I started to do well. So I I did well in school, in my classes, and uh, it, it sort of opened up a new reality for me. And I think from there is when I really had the experience and the opportunity to be my best self. That's probably the best way to say it, you know. I got in, like I said, I got into one of the most difficult fields in the, in the Navy, and I did well, and that just created confidence for me. I had to work hard. You know, it wasn't easy for me. The classes were really difficult. I had to work hard. I was studying six, eight hours a day, but because I was able to excel, it pushed me to work even harder, you know, and so I was in the Navy for four years. I got out of the Navy in 2000, and then, you know, 9-11 happened the next year. And that really um, changed me on, uh, again. It, and it really propelled me to come up with a mission for my life that would you know be my main obsession for the next 13, 14 years. And so I learned, yeah.
0: Right. finish that point.
1: Yeah, yeah. so I learned um, I learned Arabic, I learned Persian, I studied German. Um, I had already learned French. Um, I learned a number of different languages. I studied Islam uh, in a way that, you know, few people get the opportunity to who are not Muslim, Um, and then have a real impact on on a lot of people's lives. So just had a lot of great experiences.
0: Yeah, well, thanks Alex. So now let's, you know, I'll pick up a few threads from this uh, 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 summary, right? I mean, let me go back to the experience of growing up in a predominantly black neighborhood in in uh, i guess uh, the eighties right yep and uh, I mean can you talk more about the the, the pressure the different that you experience and why that was the case and let me compare it a little bit to i don 't know if it 's possible to to today i guess uh, but yeah i mean.
1: So, I didn't have the worst. You know, I didn't live in one of the worst neighborhoods, right? So I didn't grow up around gangs or gun violence, like I think you know lots of people have and continue to live in those kinds of environments. You know, my parents, um, you know, they had a high school education; they hadn't gone to college, um, and and you know they struggled to support our family. So I'm one of I'm the second oldest of eight kids. You know, my mom worked irregularly. She would work, um, you know, at the local nursing home um, or, you know, helping out at a business down the street or something like that here and there. I grew up with my stepdad. He, again, you know, sort of went from job to job. You know, we lived in an environment where, you know, we lived on food stamps and, you know, there were months where it was like, you know, we can eat a normal amount, or we can have electricity, but we can't do both, you know, and so, you know, grew up, I guess you would say a very frugal, uh, poor household. Again, like I said, I mean, there's tons of people who grow up poorer and worse environments. But, you know, I think the pressure for me, the, the way I would describe it, and the thing that probably matters to me the most is, the people around me believed that the best that they could accomplish was the best that everyone else had accomplished and so they believed that the best the best life was to conform to the life that we already had you know so there was a sort of expectation that Alex me I would accomplish the same things that my parents had accomplished, and maybe, maybe a little bit more, but not, like, substantially more, you know, so when I talked about, oh, I'm going to be a famous, who knows, astronaut or chemist or engineer or something, it was met with laughter, derision, you know, because no one had dreamed of doing those sorts of things when I was a kid and certainly didn't talk about it if they did dream about it, you know, so that there was a lot of pressure on me to, to and so, okay, so there, there, there's that pressure, right, to, to conform. But inside of me, something completely different is happening. Inside of me, I find, my, you know, I started studying French in high school. I've, I found myself thinking in French, from the first day I took French class and dreaming about going to France and wondering what other languages I would learn, you know, and just sort of, and so inside of me, I was, you know, I really liked and enjoyed my chemistry class, right? And I dreamed about becoming a famous chemist to discover some vaccine or discover some cure for something, you know? And so inside of me, I'm living this world of dreams, And everything on the outside around me is saying that's alien. That's, it's not just, it's weird or it's unusual or it doesn't make sense. It's like, that's not real. Like what's happening inside of me. is not real. It's not possible. That doesn't happen. That's for other people, you know, and in my environment, that's what white people think and say and do, you know, and that's sort of the message um, that I got is like, you're a black boy and black boys don't do that kind of stuff, you know? And so that's really the pressure that I felt growing up.
0: Yeah. So, oh, thanks. Yeah. So there was, yeah. How should I, I mean, that's very interesting. And so there was a, 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 was a disconnect right from, and and between the expectations of people around you and what you were craving or what you were yearning for. right? Right. Was, and and in a way, for it's interesting to hear this, and I didn't know this uh, about you uh, in such a precise detail, right? Because today, some uh, we we have this big discussion about, let's say, education and the, you know, performance gap, what they call between different, uh, you know, minority groups and and whites, right? So, and and some, you know, I'm just putting a few things on the table because and I let you connect the different things because your insight matters the most uh, here right so you have that and on the other hand and I've worked for many years as a substitute teacher I I teach in a community college now one of the things that bothers me sometimes uh, in the some discourses that you hear is this that they make this discourse it seems to say look these people are victims we need to help them like the victimisation argument right so it's almost that instead of empowering uh let's say uh let's say african americans okay it's it's kind of okay we we it, it's putting the burden on on something else right or the other argument is if the system is bad uh you know there's no way right and yeah uh, Can you offer, I mean, Of your experience, can you offer some reflection on some of this?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, my response is yes and, right? The system is broken, right? Um, We know how, um, you know, sort of public education systems, pre-collegiate public education systems are based on um, taxes that are Uh, gathered within the communities. And if you're living communities where you have less taxes or a less um, tax base, then you have less resources in the schools in which you exist. Right. So that disproportionately affects people from lower income environments. That doesn't have anything to do with skin color, but it has something to do with economic status. Right. So
0: So that's the economic argument. Sure.
1: Right. And so if So, okay, so that's one part of it. There are the way that our education system is set up disproportionately affects people based on things like skin color, gender and economic status. Right. Another thing is that African Americans have historically been disproportionately affected by legal health and political structures. That's just the way it is. Okay, so yes, it's true that some people um, have less opportunity. Okay, yes. But also, <laughs> there is a really important but also here. Um,
0: and, and I mean, Alex, before you move to the but also, yeah, can you maybe dwell a little more on, on, on the Let's say structure, social issues, right? Especially in light of the recent events of this summer, right? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. I mean, systemic racism, and and I think the but also will, it will is very yeah, important yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you, I mean, you, you think there still is systemic racism?
1: Yes, yes. Um, like you systemic,
0: know, I, systemic. I,
1: I was talking with someone about this yesterday and I'll say two things here. One, I never talk about these things. I never talk about um, things like systemic racism in, in public or uh, you know, in a podcast. And the reason is because, and this is the second thing, the reason is because the language with, that we use is so um, sloppy on the one hand and politically charged on the other. And that to me is the worst Mm -hmm. of all the possible combinations here, right? Because you have people who are um, really politically motivated in some way, yet they're using language which does not facilitate constructive, precise conversations, right? And so when you have things that are really charged and difficult, you want to be as precise as possible so that you are discussing the issues that matter. And it's really not just a proxy for my emotional state, Excellent. right? Thank and you. it's not just a manifestation of, or an imposition of my ego, right? It's actually me trying to solve something that has clear negative impacts on our society. Yeah, yeah, you
0: really see so. what I, mean? yeah, I see exactly what you mean. Yeah. yeah. yeah and it's uh, i w- i if i would just add uh, exactly and that's the issue i find with this kind of discourse because it, once it sounds beautiful and motivating but then the question is where do you start yes and it's it's rhetorically charged to the degree that it it amounts to a certain ideological rhetoric yeah. Yeah, which yeah, is yeah. very hard to kind of it's it's totalizing it's a very yes. hard, you know find the place okay where do we start here uh, where do we right where do we move from here right right
1: right and so you asked me a question which is politically charged and sloppy in language which says is there a such thing as structural racism you know and so,
0: so it's for, an in a, way it is a bad question
1: in a way it's a bad question right because it totalizes very important and i'm going to use this expression Uh, loosely here, micro topics, right? So structural um, racism, which I believe exists, but the existence of this thing called structural racism is less important than than its components, right? The components of it, the things that happen on a daily basis in our legal um, structures and our health institutions, and our educational institutions, like the things that happen. So if we say, oh, is structural racism, does it exist or not exist? I'm gonna say, yes, it exists. There's no doubt in my mind it exists. But the value of that conversation at that level is probably minimal and primarily rhetorical, as you mentioned you know? And so if we are actually trying to solve, and and this is another reason I tend, I don't know how you got me to talk about this stuff, but, and this is another reason I don't tend to talk about these things is because the solution, you know, for me, the value of these kinds of conversations is to solve problems, Mm -hmm. right? And ultimately the solution, the, the, the problems that we're trying to solve are around relationship building. To me, that's what matters. Whether you and I agree or disagree to me is immaterial. What matters is that, you know, you and I are able to build and maintain a meaningful relationship. And me and my neighbor are able to build and maintain a meaningful relationship. Within the contours of that relationship, we will get to know each other. And the struggles of someone like me, a gay Black man in the Midwest, will become your concerns. It will become things that you talk about and think about. And if I come home from work and and I say something like, which has not happened to me, and I say something like, a police officer just pulled me over for no reason, right? or I couldn't get in to see the doctor, or my kids can't get into these schools, as we build a relationship and, and, and we share our lives, two things, I mean, two really important things here happen. On the one side, let's just say, whatever um, group of people who are subjected to uh, bad treatment, let's just say it that way, the language there becomes the language of the group. But on the other side, if we take the person, and I'm being very generic here, you know, we take someone who's not being treated badly i am no longer able to say all of those people out there don't care about me or what's going on in my life all of those people out there are racist if you don't look like me you're a racist or a sexist or a homophobe right because not only do my issues become part of your language your language becomes part of my language and, and you,
0: your pain becomes my pain more exactly, than we share,
1: I mean, we than haven't than said, yeah. Go ahead, sorry. We haven't said, you know, the name Martin Buber right now, but he's like screaming in the background, right? <laughs> and the building of that deep relationship, right? Yeah. And so for me, again, you know, just to maybe bring it home a little bit, um, most, a lot of my closest friends are police officers or firefighters, right? And so in the world we live in today, I spend part of my day talking to police officers who feel targeted, lumped in with a group of people, or, you know, there have been police officers who've done horrible things and my friends feel like they're being lumped into that, right? My friends are being looked at as racist, violent, you know, and and so having that conversation with them gives me, um, the like I said, the other part of this relationship, their struggles, their thoughts, their experiences have become part of mine. In as much as me talking about what it's like to be a black man in the US becomes part of their conversation and their language and their life, you know, and so, I feel like it puts me in a uncomfortable, I mean, I remember literally there was one night where I talked to one of my friends um, who identifies as genderqueer, lives in Minneapolis, had recently gotten pulled over by the police and was railing about the police, etc. So that was the one part of my night that was that conversation. The next part of the conversation that same night is a friend of mine who's a police officer who was just about who just got called in to go put on all his riot gear and go deal with protesters, right? And so for me to be in the middle of those conversations, um, it forces in a good way me to have compassion, connection. And so that's probably on an emotional level but also intellectually, to interrogate the arguments on both sides and to come up with some sort of synthesis that allows me to say, how do I, um, how do I engage with people who have on both sides of this issue? Engage with them in a real honest way as human beings, right? So it's, it's uncomfortable in ways, but it's also terribly rewarding, right? Like just extremely um, important to me
0: right and and I think uh, thank you Alex yeah I mean that's pretty great I mean amazing beautiful and in in I basically share your your attitude totally uh, and uh, correct me if I wrong I mean that's why taking Martin Buber and the way I talk to the students that there's there is an I-it and an I-doubt to talk about. Yeah, this. yeah, yeah. I-it is this, you know, you can easily establish these sweeping discourses, political correctness, all of that, which sounds beautiful, uh, might be reassuring at one point, but it's lifeless, right? I'll, I'll never feel your pain. I'll never like or dislike you, right? Because I encounter, let's say, the other. I will not like everything about the other. And because I'm not a robot, right? Disliking something about the other doesn't amount to hate, right? Not every difference is a, sure. Exactly. Right. Not every difference is a discrimination. Yeah. Yeah. But the I, thou is I encounter you in your outer otherness with everything that you are, your entire experience. Yeah. Which might be very different, like as you're nice, you know, the urine counter, you, you know, the police, the fur. And that, but the problem, and that's that, in a way, what I hear you saying is that <clears throat> the solution to this, there is no one, like, there's no wholesale solution. The I think that is personal. We start yeah. at the grassroots, it has to be personal, right?
1: Yeah, I think, I think that, you know, so you mentioned the term political correctness. And I think, I think I agree with what you said, but I want to, I want to say it again. And it doesn't matter if we agree, but I just want to um, say it um, to me, the value, there is political correctness when it is implemented, which is lifeless, as you said. When it, when it just sounds good and it just feels good, it feels I mean, good by, for some people.
0: Yeah, by, just to interject, my joke about the most political correct, uh, the the yappies, you know, the, hey, come down to the south I don't know, I don't bike to the south why not? <laughs> come on, I mean, yeah. it's bullshit.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, you know, and and so if it becomes rhetoric, which allows, an individual or groups to establish differential power relationships, which says, I'm more whatever, woke, empathetic, liberal, conservative, whatever it is. If, if political correctness becomes a source of creating power that allows individuals or groups to place others beneath them, And therefore to say, make a moral assessment to say, I am therefore better and you are worse. Mm -hmm. Thus, you know, the distribution of resources based on that money, time, political, et cetera, et cetera. Right. If that's what's happening with something like political correctness, then it's, it's lifeless, but there's something really powerful, important about um, political correctness, which may be lost. Uh, I think in some ways it's been lost, but the, the, The power here is that normative structures, by definition, mute the voices that don't fit into that norm, right? And so you think about the voices of the Irish and the Italians in uh, this 18th or 19th century, right? You think about the voices of Jews, well, I don't know, throughout all of time, right? You think about the voices of African Americans in the U.S. Native Americans, and you sort of go down the list. And and in those moments where political correctness says, how can we bring light to voices which already exist, which already have impact and importance in our society, how do we shine a light on those voices and to bring them out? and have them be heard. Not because, oh, wouldn't it be nice if everybody got to get up on stage and speak? Not, not in that sense. But as a recognition of what already exists, the value that is brought, not in a material sense, right? But the value that has already been brought forward. So in that way, to me, and like I said, I'm not sure that that's how political correctness is implemented these days. But in, in that sense, it, it, is, um, it is extremely important and powerful. And certainly, for someone uh, like me.
0: Yeah, and I, I think I, I agree with you uh, in in a sense that to pr- uh, let's say political correctness or a culture of let's say maybe diversity, uh, the, yeah. the diversity, the the let's say the the philosophy of diversity before it becomes an ideology, right, a philosophy right. that allows a certain open space for. Unheard voices, yes. or or neglected, or uh, voices to be heard, and and that's I, I completely agree. Uh, it, that's uh, very welcome and necessary. And yeah, but
1: and I think it leads to the but also that I was going to get to a few minutes ago.
0: Yeah, but
1: Alex, please before, before. You, <laughs> you know, we're still only, not ready
0: <laughs> because I want us to to dwell a little bit on a theological point, right? Because. Okay you you and you know we're both uh, practicing Christians to a certain degree right and, yeah uh, uh, we're trying
1: right right <laughs> anyway, we're but, practicing
0: <laughs> but we're practicing but I mean the question and it's not just a Christian question uh, because it's it's a buberian question and uh, i'm I might I probably share this with paul Mendes floor who's is, is a very dear master of mine and uh, one of the greatest mensch uh, I know yeah. Uh, it's a question of how do you go from the personal to the system, to the culture? And yeah. It's probably also a question for Paul. Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to have to ask. Because, because, you know, when you read, uh, I mean, Paul Mendes Floor, not Paul the Apostle. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also a question for Paul the Apostle. Right, right. Paul, it, it is the Christian niche is clearly personal. I mean, Christ. Yes. Yes. Christ did not change masses. Christ changed people exactly and uh, to cite soldier needs, and good and evil passes through the heart of the person now and the, the question for me as a as a religious person uh, as a personalist too is how do you go from the person to the system or to the culture? How do you make that step and uh, yeah what do you, how do you do that? Do you do it? Okay, the one answer one to one. Okay, one to one, like the discipleship argument, or do it? Do you draw it through, you know, politically?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's actually a question that I have spent a lot of time thinking about, and the reason is because I spent so much time working um, in U.S. foreign policy, right? And I spent so much time in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. Central and Eastern Africa, um, believing that I was helping implement a policy of growing democracy, growing representative government around the world, right? So when I was in Fallujah, for example, in Iraq, you know, my intent was to help people, individuals band together to build the communities that they said that they wanted, right? Not um, terrorized by organizations like Al Qaeda, right? But motivated by what was important to them.
0: And not even even imposed from outside by the US. Exactly,
1: and not even imposed by the US, right? It's to empower individuals to develop and live the lives that they believe Um, is best for them. And there are all sorts of, well, okay, on the one side, you know, there are all sorts of examples from my life where I can say that I had an impact on individuals and maybe sometimes on communities. But the question I ask myself, and this is very sort of um, revelatory, I guess, about me I contrast that with the impact that the United States had on a country like Iraq. And I am hard pressed to say, actually no, I will say that we did not accomplish our goals, right? We did not um, establish or help the Iraqis establish a country that is stable, right? That represents from my experience anyway, the, the wishes of most people, right. Which is to be able to build a family, to have a job, to, you know, be able to practice their really, you know, all these sorts of things that, um, that I think is common in lots of different places. I, the United States did not accomplish that goal. And so it's like, um, what does that mean? What does that mean about how it could have been done or could be done in the future, right? And I think this is really tied to the question that you're asking, right? It's like, how do we institute change? Is it, you know, like you said, the discipleship method where it's sort of one-on-one and you build a flame in a person who built a flame in another person and then you, know, you sort of expand from there and you have this sort of growth of change? Or is it possible to create political structures I'm not even going to say anything about economic structures or education structures, but is it possible to build political structures that implement that kind of change? And in my head, I have settled on the fact that it is really individual. It's really at that grassroots level. So that's one thing, but the, the sobering, fact of that is it takes millennia then <laughs> it takes a long time to bring about cultural change because and this is my last point you've got my you've got me thinking and I'll just say there's one last thing at the same time that people like you and me are trying to stoke the flame In individuals for positive change, to create a better world for individuals and communities. There are other ideologues out there who are leveraging mass communication tools and methods to advance a primarily materialist worldview, right? And so as you and I are working- yeah, and so at, at, so um, that means that not only are we trying to introduce change, there's also a, an opposing force, right? That's imposing a different mindset, a different worldview, which is not leading, in my opinion, leading people to deeper awareness of themselves, of the, the relationships they have with people closest to them, the relationships with peoples in their communities, right? That's, that's been my perspective.
0: Well, thank you, Alex. This is really insightful and helpful to understand some, some, at least some of, uh, of what's going on and having a little bit of of some kind of framework to decipher the narratives as it were. And uh, yeah, the only Thing that remains, it may maybe is hope, but also hope not as something delusional, hope as yes, something real. and yeah, and and I mean, hope as, as as working and and tikkun, yes. alab,
1: right? The, the, yeah, yeah, go ahead, and that's and that's the but also, right? And so, we've talked about the current political social environment, right? And I keep using this word differential, I think it's a really important word, um, to talk about the fact that depending on what you look like, where you grew up, and how much money you have, your experience in America is different. That's just the way it is. But also, (laughs) and this to me is the most important part, and this is why I do not talk a lot about um, racism, homophobia, sexism, all that sort of stuff, is because the but also is work hard work really, really hard. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're gonna become a general or an astronaut or the president of the United States, but take what you've been given in this life and transform it into something which no one would have ever believed that you could have accomplished. Right. you know so i grew up like i said uh, outside of philadelphia in a town called norristown and i grew up around people who you know didn't really think about going to college and i went on to get a phd at one of the best universities in the world it was not easy at all i had to you know it wasn't handed to me i had to there were moments really important moments when someone said to me I think you can do this next big thing, right? In my academic journey, there have always been teachers who have said, I think you can move, you know, like when I was in elementary school, I think you can be in the gifted classes. But when I got into the gifted classes, no one did my homework for me. No one explained, you know, how to do geometry proofs for me. I had to figure that out on my own. And so certainly at moments, there are people who said, Let me help you, but when I got to that next phase, I had to suffer through the work of of living up to the promise of that new thing, right? And so I went to the University of Chicago where I got my PhD. I met a professor before I got there and he said, I think you would do well at this top university. I had to do the work of applying. Right, and writing my essays and et cetera. You were at
0: U-Boulder, right? Another. I was at the University of Colorado in Boulder,
1: yeah. You know, and when I got to the University of Chicago, I knew that um, academically I was behind. It took me probably two or three weeks to realize, wow, the people that I'm in class with know more about history and philosophy and language than I even thought possible. And so I had a choice to make. Right. It's to say, oh, well, you know, I was, everybody always told me I was never going to be anything or go anywhere or do anything. So um, I guess they're right. I guess I just sort of lay, lay down and die. But I didn't do that. I started, th- you know, we'd take three classes. I was taking five classes a quarter. I was spending all of my time in the library, I identified all the smart people in my classes. And I said, you're gonna spend an hour with me in the library. Or you're gonna spend three hours with me in the library. Then I'm gonna take you and I'll buy you dinner or I'll take you out to have a drink or something, right? And I would just pick their brain and I'd, you know, so the, the moral of the story is there are lots of reasons, legitimate reasons, structural reasons why people fail. But those reasons don't have to, they don't necessitate failure. They don't determine failure. But what I believe is that I determine success and failure for my life. And like I said, it doesn't mean that um, someone has to become a you know, four-star general president of the United States or something like that. But as we as individuals identify our goals in life, to be a good parent, to get, be a good husband or a good wife or a good partner, to be a great person, a neighbor, you know what I mean? As we define those things that matter to us and bring meaning to our lives, then we we bust down every barrier to get there. And that's why I said, well, you know, when we started this sort of part of the conversation, it's a yes and. Just because, you know, in the United States, we have this myth of, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It doesn't mean that, and it actually implies that that there are people who don't have that hand up. Right? It and and I would make it a stronger statement. We know that there are people who need a hand up. You know, like I said, I grew up on welfare and food stamps, right? That in and of itself doesn't have moral value in my opinion. Whether someone is on food stamps or welfare is is morally irrelevant. What matters, so you know, some people say oh, you're good or bad, or you shouldn't do this, or you shouldn't do that. Some people live in environments where that is a necessity. However, it doesn't have to define who that person is or how they accomplish their goals, or even what those goals are, you know. Mm-hmm.
0: Wow, yeah, thank you. Yeah. So so in a way, you, you're making a little bit of a, I mean, anti-Marxist argument that you're not defined by your material conditions without saying that the material conditions are not important in a person's life, right? That yeah. Sometimes, and I mean, not sometimes, these material conditions need to be met but there's so much more to us than, than that, right? Than, yeah. the material, the, the, than the material dimension. Right?
1: And, I, and I think that's part of the problem with the rhetoric that we hear frequently is that it's reductionist, right? It says either your material condition is all that matters or it does not matter. And, and we have to have this yes and, right? Which says, yes. Our material condition matters. How we grow up, what we look like, what we have access to matters. Also, there is something about the human condition, I believe, that allows us to push further and push beyond. And so long as that drive is not emphasized, individuals succumb to the the language of living up to whatever others around them said they should live up to.
0: Or succumb to, let's say, being or reducing oneself to one's circumstances. Exactly,
1: uh, and and, you know, the other, I mean, the other point I want to bring out here frequently when we talk about overcoming obstacles, and I say we here, I mean, if you think about like movies and songs, and books that are written, we talk about overcoming obstacles. We tend to use examples of like wildly famous people, right? Like NFL players, NBA players, presidents, um, you know, people who Come from nothing at times, who come from nothing and accomplish everything. Make all the money in the world, best um, relationships, families, religious life, etc. And there is value in those stories, right? There's value in saying something like, here's a person who had nothing and now they have everything, materially, spiritually, emotionally, etc. At, at the same point, it's to me, I would almost say it's irrelevant, right? The percentage of people who, let's just say, make it into the NFL, full stop. Then the percentage of people who make it into the NFL who actually won't even want to be in the NFL is still like infinitesimally small numbers, right? We can go down that list until you're at, you know, call the number, the percentage of college football players who make it into the NFL is still like a really small number, <laughs> you know, so, so I always ask myself, what's the value of, of, of repeating those stories? Mm-hmm. And like I said, there is some value, but the, the negative part here is I think it encourages mm-hmm. the simplification of mm-hmm. dreaming, right? Oh, oh. It. Yeah, go on. It narrows what people think they should dream about and understand what matters, right? And so someone will say, what matters is, oh, if I can become a famous singer or a famous athlete or a famous politician. When the likelihood of that, if we just think sort of statistically is so small that you wonder, should we even be, sharing these stories as widely as we are.
0: Right, and, and I, I wanna, I think it, you're making a very valuable point because I, I see my students being almost duped by this discourse and deceived. Right? Uh, and and me as an immigrant, I, I think, I, I think American optimism is is worthwhile. Yeah, But definitely. then sometimes it becomes almost delusional, right? And, and 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 the effect on on young people is is it, it induces them with a certain kind of non-realism and really unrealistic expectations, and then sets them up for some disappointment. So, I want you to maybe continue your point. So uh, so 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 what? What what did you want to say? Yeah yeah. Say? yeah.
1: I mean, I think, I mean, I, you know, when you said it, it can be delusional. I sort of took a pause there, but I think you're right in the technical sense, right? In the sense that um, there are individuals who are deluded into thinking that the, the odds of making it as an NFL player are higher than they actually are. Right. And so sometimes American optimism turns into this thing where individuals believe things that are believe that things are likely, which are highly unlikely. Um, and so, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important, um, point about American optimism, that it can be delusional, but I think at its core, um, it is essential and really critical to, if we call it the American experiment, right? That optimism about who we can be and what we can accomplish, it can be perverted, right? Optimism can be perverted into something which is delusional. But at its core, it's essential, I think. And for me, certainly, being optimistic has, is what has driven me through my life and allowed me to succeed in a lot of ways um, to stay alive. But what I would say, you know, is really important is, a, is around an idea of, like, dream making. How do individuals make the dreams for which they direct their lives. What are the dreams that energize them and cause them to push past and break through obstacles that otherwise would stop them? And it's fine, you know, and I guess the main point is probably the final point that I want to make here is it's essential that an individual define their dream and that they not simply transplant the dream of someone else onto themselves. It's not good enough to say this other person dreamed about becoming a famous artist. Therefore, I'm going to become a famous artist. It's essential that the individual identify their personal dream, to take the time and effort to understand who they are in some ways, and then craft a future and a life around that. Mm. And sometimes that means I want to be um, a strong bulwark in my community. My community means so much to me, or my family means so much to me, or my school, my job, whatever those things are, and that it's okay and valued to have that as the motivating factor of our lives. The more we put celebrities on pedestals, right? The less, the things that actually matter in life seem to have less value. Right.
0: Right? right? The less, uh, what I hear you saying is that you're advocating for a, a certain kind of groundedness and embeddedness yes right that and and i think because the two extremes right are on the one hand you can be this very uh almost this very uh ungrounded dream which is gnostic in a way it's a form of gnosticism because it, it has no connection to embodiedness or embeddedness uh, right in a certain and embodiness in a comu- in a body in a community in a family right yeah or on the other hand you have a certain kind of and you know i cannot find a, another uh, another cynicism right there you're just there's no horizon it, it's it's you're you're in the cave right in a little yeah. bit like what you described about your your childhood this notion that there's no horizon
1: yeah yeah and, and I mean, it's it's an interesting maybe, thing.
0: Just to finish my maybe one way to to grasp grasp this is, is, and that's why I'm very, I, I like the, the the idea of hope very much because hope is is a, the, hope as a virtue is is embedded. It's not BS. It's you are embedded. You're not BSing yourself, but on the other hand, you're not in a bubble and you're not in a cave either.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a sense where there is, you you use the term disembodied. And I think there's a a trap or temptation on both sides, right? And on the one side, there's this disembodiment of, it doesn't matter who I am or who I want to be, I will simply be what is popular to be. And that is a sense of being disembodied as well, right? Like you are distanced from who you are as a person. And so I'm making a very, uh, I'm I'm making a subtle point in a strong way. And the subtlety here is that if you want to be an NFL player and you have the skills, go do that. Let that animate your life in context of being a whole person. But I think one of the worst things that I can imagine is someone reading my book and saying, oh, I'm gonna go do that, right? It's like, why, why would, I mean, I lived my life in the best way that I knew possible. I identified um, what mattered to me and I pursued it at all costs. But for someone else to say, oh, I'm gonna go do that same thing is, (laughs) it's disembodied, I mean, it's all sorts of things but it it puts that person in a situation where they separate themselves from who they are and they begin to try to imitate or mimic something that I did with my life, which is not the end, not the goal, the purpose of being a human, I, I don't think. Yeah right and yeah. so whatever it is like i said i've sort of said no, you, not everybody's going to be a general or a senator or a president but if if that motivates you then go do that but do it because it animates and motivates who you understand yourself to be mm-hmm. that's yeah. my only point
0: yeah and and maybe uh, just to add end the first part of our conversation yeah the, um, uh, I, wa- I wanted to ask because you mentioned along the lines of the but and or but to the, and you, you provided this very strong emphasis on hard work or on grit, overcoming uh, in spite of, of all the adversity and basically yeah. taking into account the adversity, which, right, not being unrealistic or uh, saying, oh, there's no adversity, right? And this is the but right. Now, what, what did provide, what fueled or motivated you, what, what gave you, and I know, uh, and, and we'll talk about this in the second part of our conversation about your your religious conversion and your spiritual religious life. I know that has been an important component reading. Right. I should have started with mentioning your book, but I'll put your book, uh, which is called I'll Go. And I'll put the book on the, on the blog too. Yeah. Uh, Great. Thanks. So, so what what has fueled you what has given you you know power to endure to overcome to keep going to persist to persevere
1: yeah i you know yeah this will be we'll have to um get into the details i think in our next installment i think there are um two things one um i was afraid that if I stopped running I would die. I think based on how I grew up um, there was there was a I'm hesitating to say it was a sense of fear because it's not like I was motivated by fear but there was a fire in my belly first there has been a fire in my belly for so long and I think it was it was initiated by how I grew up, right? And seeing how I perceived the people around me and being afraid that I would fall into them. And I think that really propelled me. That's on the one hand. On the second hand, um, you know, you talked about sort of my conversion story. There's always been a sense of mission and purpose in how I've lived my life. And some kind of divine ratification of that life. Uh, like I said, we can, we can talk in more detail about that. But I think, you know, again, you know, we talked about the stories of people who overcome, you know, and a lot of times it's like, oh, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's all about God or it's all about my personal grit or all about my personal, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that is part of it. But. What I don't wanna do is to, um, Mm. but what I don't wanna do is um, ignore the fact that there is some, there was something subconscious going on with me, right? Like I was motivated to change the world and to really make a difference. I felt like, um, you know, my, my faith had an important part of me living out this life that I wanted to live. And so that's all really important. I think we'll talk a lot about that in detail, but that's why I led with the first part, right? It's probably not fear, but something like fear um, that propelled me. And, and, and as we tell these stories of triumph, I want to bring that out in myself and my story that talks about, Um, I grew up in a place and I I had experiences there and it impacted me and it continues to impact me and it's not pretty and it's not nice and it may not feel good. And it probably doesn't make the front cover of a book or something, but um, I think lots of people have that, you know, lots of people who are successful or on the path to being successful um, struggle with remembering and seeing and feeling and hearing the voices from our past. That are constantly pulling in some way, pulling down you know sort of moving our lives up, and these influences and it gets less over time, but are sort of pulling down right, and so those two things i want to I want to keep in mind, but yeah th- those that that 's sort of how I um, was able to keep moving forward
0: mm-hmm. so in a way the the power to recycle Uh, yeah right all the all the 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 baggage you yes acquired right right and uh, so that it didn't become a burden but although you could never discard the burden right you could still take the burden and do something with it uh and i have to say i've i've never i mean it Reading your book, what struck me is your constant desire to challenge yourself with something. I mean yeah, yeah. you, you, you join the Navy, then at the University of Chicago, right? You learned yeah. Arabic, you 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 moved to Egypt, expose you know, immerse yourself in complete immersion, right, in a completely different culture. Uh I mean, then coming back uh, i just found out that you also did a master's in chemistry (laughs) seriously i i don't understand or comprehend how you could have could did it in you know i mean doing both and then uh, Fallujah, and then uh, Afghanistan. I mean, I, you can you can tell there is a is a, there is a track record. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And your, your your fireman experience. Yeah, right, right, right. Right, the the the, the excruciating physical challenge. Uh, right there there. So there there's some there's this track record or looking for, for challenges that you can overcome uh and i've you know there's there's a track record of that
1: yeah yeah for sure we'll have to uh yeah yeah, we should get into it more in our next one huh yeah
0: yeah all right i'm looking forward to it it.
1: yeah yeah Yeah, let's do that
0: yeah we'll do another installment okay great that sounds great
1: thanks a lot adrian
0: yeah so i